For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? Amen. It's a classic passage. You got some Awana verses in that, that passage, and that's why we're in the book of Romans. Throughout Romans, we have examined the gospel from chapter 1 through 8. We looked at the gospel in great detail. We slowed down and examined every part of Paul's explanation and his argument. But today, we get a very simple presentation of how a man may be saved which we all know, but it's a welcome reminder just to be seen to put out very plainly. With all of that doctrine and that theology in the background, we stand on it, and Paul makes a very simple one-verse statement of how to be saved. And next week, we're going to be looking at his commission to take the gospel to the world, and as a church, that's what we're doing. We are heralds of the good news. We are bringing the message of salvation to the world. That is our only priority. That is our only thing that we do. Anything else that we do should be in support of that goal or that mission. And if not, it might be a nice thing, but it's not for us. Our job is to proclaim the good news. It is your job. It is your job in your workplace and in your family and your school to proclaim the gospel. But you've got to know what you're proclaiming. What are you telling people? Because you can start with all eight chapters of Romans if you like, but usually people are looking for something a little more simple. But the good news is you can present a simple gospel without compromising it. And that's what Paul does in Romans 10. And I'll say to anybody who's watching on our live stream, anybody who is here today, I don't know all of you, which is an exciting thing, but I don't know you. And I will say that if you are placing your confidence in anything other than the words we are going to read right here, you are still lost. You might feel like things are getting better. You might feel more comfortable with yourself. But unless you have confessed that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will not be saved. So the question you must ask yourself today is, this is what God says you have to do to be saved. Have you done that? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So will you be saved? If you're ready to do things God's way and submit to his righteousness, then you will be saved. So let's take a look at this. This is so much of the Bible, really 66 books boiled down into the appeal that we all make together. So let's go back. Let's look at it slowly, verse or two at a time, beginning with verse five. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. And he writes that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Our first point that we get here, the first point of the simple gospel presentation is that no one is good enough. That's where we start. He uses this word for, which is a backwards looking word. You need to read the book of Romans as a 
arguments that is being unfolded, right? That each part builds on the part that came before it. So you need to look at the context. And the last thing that Paul said in verse four was that Christ is the end of the law. And that word for end is telos. You maybe are familiar with that word. It means the goal of something, the purpose of something, where you were being led to. The law is to lead you to Christ. We've talked about this. It's supposed to show you that you can't keep the law. Therefore, your only option is to throw yourself upon God's mercy, which he has provided in Christ Jesus. And the whole section of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is Paul's lament that the Jews missed that. They missed that the whole purpose of the law was to bring them to the end of themselves and to bring them to Christ. That they were trying to establish their own righteousness. And in verse 5, he tells us, if you want to get righteousness from the law, here's how you do it. And you need righteousness. Because if you are not righteous, meaning if you are not holy before the Lord, then you are subject to the wrath of God. Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, all wickedness, all sin, all evil, however small, however incipient, is under the wrath of God. So we need righteousness. So how do we get it? He says, if you want to try to get it from the law, here's how you do it. He says, you have to keep the law. That makes sense. If you want to be a righteous person, you do what the righteous law says. And the law, of course, is absolutely righteous. And you don't see it in quotations here, but in verse 5, he's making reference to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. If you're taking notes, chapter or verse 5 refers to Leviticus 18, 5, where Moses said that if you want to live, you keep the law. It's exactly what he says. Because if you want to have life, if you want to have righteousness, if you want to be accepted before God, keep these commandments. That is the method of the law. So many people that want to say that the Christians need the law, we need to keep Moses' law. Paul reminds us the rules of the law. The rules of the law is if you want to live by them, you better keep them. And that seems fair. You got to do the right thing in order to be considered righteous. But the danger of that statement is not that it's true, but the converse is also true. That if you don't keep the law, you will die by the law. If you keep the law, you'll live by the law. But if you don't keep the law, you will die by the law. And as Paul took great time to demonstrate, and as I think we all kind of know, no one can keep the law because nobody is perfect. Nobody can keep every aspect of the law. We can start with just the basic Ten Commandments. If you've ever lied, sorry, you've broken the law. If you've ever kept something else other than God first place in your heart, then you're an idolater according to the law. Jesus expanded it out and made it even more intense, didn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you look upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. If you have hatred in your heart, if you even insult your brother, you're guilty of murder as far as God is concerned. James put it real clearly in James chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Because what the law is ultimately judging is not whether or not you can keep these standards, but are you the person who cannot keep these standards? Does sin dwell in you? That's what God ultimately judges. Haven't you noticed that sin comes out of you? It doesn't come at you. Sometimes it feels that way, but if you were a perfect person, there'd be nothing for sin to call out. 
Whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Salvation by works seems like a good idea until you realize nobody can have enough works to be saved. No one is good enough. This is the starting point of the Christian's salvation. We have to realize that the standard of heaven is perfection. It's not good. It's not better than. It's not good enough. It's perfection. Because God is perfect. There is no sin in God and he cannot look upon sin. And because God is a good judge, he cannot overlook sin. A good judge will not let a serial killer go free out of the goodness of his heart. I know he sinned, and there's really no reason for me to expect that he won't go out and do this again, but I'm just such a nice guy. We'd be furious. I mean, we've seen even in recent days, if people don't feel like justice has been done, we get angry. And we get angry, and we even will march and take to the streets to call out for justice. Well, let me tell you, God is no less just than a human judge. And he must judge sin in a terrible place called hell. No one has done enough. This is our starting point. That's why we cannot live by the law. This was the Hebrews' mistake. They figured, well, we've got God's good law. It's a good standard. So let's keep it and we'll be saved. Failing to grasp the point that nobody can keep it. Nobody is perfect. And as Paul made it clear in Romans 2 as well, swap that out for any other law. You can't keep that one either. Well, I'm not a Jew. I've never read the law. Fine. What's your moral standard? Have you kept that perfectly? Well, no, I haven't. Well, then it functions in the same way. It shows you that there is sin dwelling in you that must be judged. You are under the wrath of God because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, not just against really bad unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. Paul said in Galatians 3, and he actually is quoting from the same place in Leviticus 18 here. He says, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So if you're one of those people that has a strange fascination with the Old Testament and the law, Paul tells us, no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So our first lesson is you've got to sober up because God has said no one is good enough to be saved. Nobody. There's not a person in this room. I don't care if you drag the most saintly person you've ever heard of. doesn't matter if they're nice. We talked about this with the young adults group on Saturday. Very often we think that because somebody's nice, they can't possibly be a sinner. That's not the same thing. You can be nice. You can be kind. You can be sweet. We're not saying you are as evil as possible, but there's still sin that dwells in you. And God told us that we can never be good enough to be saved. If you want to trust in yourself, it's a losing game. And God has warned you ahead of time out of his mercy. So let's look at verse 6 now through 8. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your heart and in your mouth. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So we saw in verse 5, what the righteousness that is based on the law says. Now we're contrasting with what the righteousness based on faith says. And our second point that we're looking at is that Jesus has died and risen from the dead. He died and rose again. We're trying to find righteousness so that we're not under the wrath of God. And Paul says the first way you can do it is by the law or by your works, we might say. And that's a losing game because nobody can ever do enough. 
But the second way is by faith. And he starts by establishing faith in what? Faith in Jesus. And this is in there. We've got to look closely at it to see this. You'll notice that Paul is still giving Old Testament quotations here. Because in context, Paul is explaining the Jews' failure to find salvation. Romans chapter 9, the beginning part, he was saying, it's really kind of odd that the Jewish Messiah has brought salvation to way more Gentiles than to Jews. And that's what this whole section here is about. And he quotes there from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. So 6, 7, and 8, each has a section of quote. That is from Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14. What that context is, Moses is talking to the people about the blessings and the curses that will come upon them if they keep or don't keep the law. And the Lord says, inevitably, you're going to fail, and I'm going to have to exile you and send you to the uttermost parts of the earth, and your crops are going to be ravaged, and you won't be having children. It's going to be terrible. But he says in chapter 30, if you call out for me, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me, and I will bring you back. Then in verse 12, he says, this is not so difficult. This is not something that you've got to go up to heaven to get or go down into hell to get, but it's right there near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. So it's amazing to consider for as much as we like to pit the Old Testament against the new. Even in the Old Testament, God was saying the way you're restored from exile is through confession and belief, your mouth and your heart. He's giving them, he says, something doable. So if you want to be forgiven, I, I've not given you something that's too hard. He says that righteousness is not found either by reaching up into heaven, that is, Paul says, to bring Christ down, or reaching down into the abyss, Paul says. If you read it in Deuteronomy 30, he talks about the sea, across the sea. But because the abyss, the bottomless pit, was thought as a deep, watery place in New Testament times, Paul's making the same point, but he's using a term that they can connect to. Both of those things, going up into heaven and going down into the depths of the earth, describe great effort and great heroism. It takes a special kind of person to go up into heaven or to go down into the grave. And the Lord says, that's not what I'm asking you to do. And the thing is, it's a good thing he's not asking us to do that. Because that's what getting righteousness through your own works is about like. It's about that hard. So how good do I have to be to be saved? You say, well, could you climb up into heaven and grab salvation? Could you dig your way down into hell and grab your salvation from there? No, but God says, I, I'm not asking you to do that. And as Paul reminds us, both of these solutions, it's like, what, I got to go up to heaven? I got to go down to the abyss? No. Paul says, I know somebody that already did that for you. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. So when we're today talking about salvation by faith, faith in what? Faith in what Jesus has done. The first thing he says that Christ has come down from heaven. He, we say, well, who's going to get up into heaven? How about heaven comes down to us? Jesus came down from heaven. He is God, very God made flesh. Jesus of Nazareth was not just a man. He was not just another Gandhi or Muhammad or Martin Luther King or some other great moral person. He was unique. He was God, very God. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, which is a name that the Bible uses for Jesus, the logos. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's the Trinity. Identified with God and yet distinct from God. And then in verse 14, that word, that logos became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's why we call Jesus the Son of God. Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary. He was more than a man. He never sinned. He tasted humanity in every respect for us, except that he never sinned, the Bible says. He taught the righteousness of God to us, way more intense than Moses ever did, as I've already pointed out. He did so many miracles and signs and wonders. His works and his life attest that he was not just a man, but as Peter said, you are God's Messiah. But not only did Jesus come down, Jesus went down into the earth and then came back up again. He died on the cross as our substitute and then rose again from the dead. Jesus was not just a moral example to look to, as if we needed another one of those. We just described how you can't live up to moral examples. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, Paul says, I deliver to you as of first importance. So whatever he's about to say is the most important thing Paul ever had to say. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The most important thing Paul ever had to say is that Jesus is the son of God who died, was buried and rose again on the third day. That's what our faith is put in. He is the one that has gone down into the grave and in fact, come back from the grave. He bore not just the torture of men, but the wrath of God on the cross. The very thing that we're trying to avoid, that we are guilty and deserve God's wrath revealed against unrighteousness. Jesus, the one who didn't deserve it, died on the cross and took the wrath of God upon himself. That was God's wrath. The punishment that you deserved put on Jesus. He was torn down from that cross, wrapped up and buried. But he rose again on the third day. Hallelujah. Amen. Somebody, come on. He rose again. That's why we're here, is to testify to that. People want to say, what's the evidence of the resurrection? How about the fact that there have been millions of people across thousands of years holding on to that testimony? We are the living witness of his resurrection. Why did he rise from the dead? First of all, he had paid for sin, so sin and death couldn't hold him. Number two, he was showing that he has established victory over death, that we will rise with him. He has the ability to bring us back from death. All these other religions and gods that want to talk about what they can do for you, have they died and come back? No, they have not. But Jesus did. We're not waiting for, well, you know, one day we believe he'll come back. He already did. He already rose. He ascended. And he's coming back someday. In the meantime, we got work to do. That's the word of faith. You are putting your faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We are called Christians for a reason. Because our entire identity and faith and hope is based around Christ, the person of Jesus and what he has done. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot earn salvation. Stop trying if you think you can, especially those of you who are young in this room and think you can still figure it out because I've seen some people that have some good ideas, learn the lesson now. Don't break your own heart. Learn it now. You cannot save yourself. What we require is a perfect substitute. What if somebody could take the penalty for me and then offer me forgiveness? That's exactly what you have in Jesus Christ. He had to be the son of God which is why we insist on things like the deity of Christ. Because nobody else 
could do that. Everybody else had to pay for their own sins first. That's what the Psalms say, actually. It says, no man can ransom the life of another, for his own life is too much for him to pay. And you know, this is a thoroughgoing rebuke to the world and its, its hero's journey, as it's called. You've heard of this, haven't you? It's, it's this idea that every story in history is really based on one truth, and that is that man must walk through life and go down into the grave and come out and then go back up into heaven, and, and that's, that's what salvation looks like. It's something you've got to do for yourself. And this is where you get stories like Aeneas, who went down into the grave, or Hercules, who went up into heaven, and, and all those stories. What the, the Christian Bible tells us and by the way, the guy that came up with that idea was a guy named Joseph Campbell. And he had a, a little section in his book. And he said, the only religions I can see that don't line up with this are Christianity and Judaism. Which tells me that's where you ought to be looking, pal. You ought to be looking to the one. Because what does he say? Because, he says, they place all of their hope for salvation in Christ. Or at least the Jews are looking to the Lord. You understand the connection there. Because Christians are looking to Jesus, not to themselves. That's because we get it, man. We get it. I can't go down into hell. We do it symbolically. Symbolic doesn't mean anything to me. I'm still the same old person. The Bible tells us right here, you can't go down into hell. You can't climb up into heaven. But Jesus did and does and can offer it to you freely. Doesn't sound very self-actualizing. Hey, it's not. It's self-crucifying. It's death to the self. It's putting to aside the old man so that you can find a new life that is only lived in Christ Jesus. Every other way of salvation fails because it keeps salvation in your hands. God goes, I've done most of it, now you finish it. No, I can't. I can't. I'm still the same guy. But in Christ Jesus, the Lord says, I've done everything. Here, you can have it for free. That seems too simple. It's the only thing that would work for you. You are that broken. I thought Christianity was supposed to be positive. It is. We've got to start by acknowledging who we are. Acknowledge that we're not good enough. We're not so special. We're not a, a, you know, a special stained glass window brought together of all the broken pieces of our life. We're just broken. But if you can find your life in Christ, then it doesn't matter if you're broken. Isn't that awesome? That's what we're believing. Salvation is about as hard as heaven and hell. But we know somebody who has been there who fills all things, as Ephesians 4 says, and he offers you his righteousness freely. So to be a Christian has an awful lot to do with Christ. And there are a lot of versions of the faith that are presented that really try to soft-pedal Jesus and focus on you a lot. No, that's, that's not what the Bible has to say. The Lord has put everything on Christ Jesus, and so we must. Okay, I can't save myself. Jesus Christ has done everything that is necessary, so what do I need to do? Verses 9 and 10. If you've been a Christian for a while, you know these, and you should. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So the last thing he just said was the word of faith. Moses told the people, it's not in heaven, it's not in hell, it's in your heart and it's in your mouth. And Paul goes, but let me tell you exactly what must be in your heart and your mouth. It's the word of faith, faith in Christ Jesus. And 9 and 10 gives us the tightest synopsis of what you must do to be saved in the book of Romans. Other, other places, Peter will just holler at people and say, repent and believe. This gives us a little more detail, but it's, it's, it's really great to know this. 
For all the theology and all the detail we've seen, this was Paul's call to action. In fact, we know from 1 Corinthians 2 that Paul didn't give complicated messages when he preached the gospel. I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in fact, people would complain that Paul's preaching in person was unimpressive. He said, we read your letters, Paul, and they're wonderful. And I've heard people say things like, haven't you read Romans? Paul is the greatest preacher of all time. Paul goes, not really. I showed up and all I had to say was, Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And if you believe, you'll be saved. So take the pressure off yourself a little bit. Lord used that man like he hadn't used anybody else. This is his call to action. First, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You can't save yourself. Jesus has done it all. How do you get a hold of that? Number one, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. This is a public acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is everything he said and claimed to be. That he is the Son of God. God, very God, as the old creed says. That he is the only way to be saved. You're confessing that Jesus is Lord. Lord means master. Lord means sovereign. Lord means the one that has rights over you. And you know, in the days that Paul wrote this, to call Jesus Lord was a dangerous thing. Christians were thrown to the lions. They were dipped in candle wax and set on fire. Their skin was scraped off with dull knives. They were beheaded and torn apart by wild horses because they said that Jesus Christ is Dominus, which is the Latin for Lord. And you know, in the Roman Empire, there was one Dominus. There was only one Lord, and that was Caesar himself. And Christians went to their graves because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. They refused to stand before an idol of Caesar, take a pinch of incense, drop it in the fire and say, Caesar is Dominus. They refused. And I have read some very troubling things from Christians who say it's really kind of ridiculous that the Christians refused to do that because it was very clearly political loyalty, not religious loyalty. Well, I fear for that Christian if persecution ever comes our way because they said, no, there is no other Lord. There is only Jesus Christ. And even Christian or emperors and governors used to plead with these Christians. It's not that big a deal. You're just saying some things. You don't have to believe it. Just move on. But they said, no, I have already confessed that I have one Lord and one master and I refuse to bow to any other. And you know, if that was something in Rome, imagine what it was like in Jerusalem. Because in the Old Covenant, Old Testament, they called God... Yahweh, Jehovah, however you want to vocalize that, they, out of respect, didn't even say the name of God. They would say Adonai, which just means Lord or Master. You could have a human Adonai, just like you could have a human Master, but they called God the, the Adonai, just like we call him Lord to this day. It's continuing in that tradition. But to go to Jerusalem and say, Jesus Christ is Adonai, you are saying that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the Lord that spoke to Moses from the mountain. Jesus Christ is the Lord that inspired the word. Now you know why they picked up stones to stone him when he said, I and the Father are one. To call Jesus Lord was a dangerous thing, and it's still dangerous today. My only Lord is Jesus Christ. People start to accuse you of having divided loyalties. Wouldn't be too hard 
It's not happening now, but it wouldn't be too hard to see in our, our nation and our country if things got really difficult and there were certain things being pushed on us and you know, we say, no, we serve Jesus Christ. and say, well, we need to have your first loyalty be this country because we need you. And you might be traitors, you might be deceptive. No, we're, we serve Jesus Christ first. That's happened. Not, it's, here, it's happened all over the place. We can't abide these Christians because they have a loyalty that is higher than the state. So something must be done about them. To call Jesus Lord implies the submission of your life to him forever. You've seen old, old knights in shining armor movies where the knight will bow and swear fealty to his Lord. The Lord now gets to tell him what to do and where to go and who to fight. That's the same thing for you when you bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. And Paul says it is the confession itself that saves you. That matters. You making a public stand usually tied to baptism, which is a very public way of saying Jesus is my Lord, matters. You've got to tell the world and not hide like you were ashamed of it. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 through 33, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. Isn't that cool? If you acknowledge Jesus as Lord, when you stand before God, God's going to say, son, who is this? That's one of mine, Lord. He's with me. But he also said in verse 33, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Oh, the Lord will understand if people knew I was a Christian at work, if they knew that I was one of those people, uh, I'd probably get a lot of harassment and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be promoted. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father who is in heaven. The confession matters. But second, he says, you must believe in your heart. And we might say, well, that's more important than confessing. Paul ties them together because it is such a deep belief that you are willing to make the confession. And it's such a deep confession that you wouldn't make if you didn't believe it in your heart. You've got to believe the whole story, especially the resurrection. That's sort of the key of the whole thing. You must believe in your heart. You cannot just say, okay, well, it's just getting close to the end of my life. I'm starting to get nervous about death. I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. There you go. Now I'm all set. No, it doesn't work that way. That's not a true confession. That's not belief in your heart. You cannot carry on in the church doing churchy things and expecting those things to save you. Well, I'm there every Sunday. That's great. I'm glad you're here every Sunday. But do you believe what we're saying here? You know, there have been many a man, especially, that has come to church because his wife wants him there. And he kind of knows that I should go. It's good to be there. The kids need a little religion in their lives, you know, and, and then we get a little older and, you know, maybe they'll kind of wise up a little bit. But, you know, it's great that there's community and it's great that there's projects. And I like, you know, going to the, the fishing trips, but it was a lot of mumbo jumbo and I'm not really interested in that. So they try to be ushers so that they can sit outside in the lobby and not have to listen to any of it. It happens. That's not going to save anybody. I'm a church member. So what? Have you believed in your heart that he has atoned for your sins as no one else can? This involves a leap of faith sometimes. You've got to say, I, I, you've got to decide at some point, I've received enough evidence. I've got to believe because God said. And listen, God meets you when you make that confession. You decide to believe. God will give you everything that you need to be assured of that salvation. But it also is a death to yourself. And that's often harder. Very often, you realize that if I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, that means that everything that I've done is not worth anything. 
And I've got to be willing to believe that my whole life is worth nothing. I just can't do it. But when you do believe, he says, you are justified. Like when Abraham believed God, God said to Abraham, I will give you a son. Trust me. And Abraham believed God. In that moment, it says God counted his faith as righteousness. When you say, I believe, Lord, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins, rose from the dead, offering me grace freely. I believe that. In that moment, God counts that faith as righteousness. He puts it in the ledger as righteous. The exact thing that we're looking for. Because unrighteousness merits the wrath of God. Habakkuk 2 verse 4 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Or the just shall live by faith. He's saying pride is the opposite of faith because pride puffs you up, makes you think you don't need anything. But real justice and real righteousness comes through faith. And listen, there is a life that comes after that initial justification that we looked at in great detail, especially in chapters six, seven, and eight. But that first moment matters so much. And you know, in America and elsewhere, we made such a big deal out of the decision like, well, we had a decision today, therefore it counts that, and we've neglected discipleship, but there's been a correction in the church that we're realizing, no, you can't just leave somebody at the altar. You've got to take them along after that. True, but that first initial moment still matters. Thief on the cross did not get any discipleship, but he confessed and believed, and that was enough. So it's important that we remember the importance of making disciples, but also the importance. People need to come to a point where they confess and believe. It's often it's much easier to put somebody in a discipleship class than to bring them to the place where they're willing to be broken before the Lord God. They both matter. You must confess and believe that you are not your own master. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Well, if you're the captain of your soul, that ship is leading you straight to hell. You cannot save yourself. There's there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You have to confess that Jesus is your new master, the only one who can save you with all the implications that come in. I'll never forget, there was a fellow that got saved at our church in Virginia, and he had been a bad guy. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. He'd been a bad, notorious sinner. And when he finally got saved, the Lord finally got a hold of him, he came in to speak to my father, who was the pastor, and he said, all right, I'm all in. What do I got to do? And they just start walking through the basics of the faith and what you need to do. And he goes, what about tithing? I've heard about tithing before. How much money do I have to give? My dad doesn't want to make a big deal out of money, obviously, right? So he's like, look, the Bible says that we ought to give generously and that we ought to, you know, it doesn't give us a specific number. And the guy holds up his hand and he goes, just tell me what to do. I love that attitude. He says, I don't care. He says, "You're, you're trying to spare my feelings, Stop it. Just tell me what I got to do. Jesus is my Lord now. What does my Lord require of me? Isn't that wonderful? That I, no, just tell me what to do. Come to the Lord. Like so many people in the book of Acts came to Paul and Peter and said, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? That's the question. Jesus is your master. Everything is lost in that moment. And you realize, wait a minute, that's all I got to do is confess and believe? That's so easy. Well, I'll say this. It's simple. But it's not always easy. This is why you see, and I've told this illustration before, but it's why you see grown men weeping at the altar. If you want to just look at it clinically, it's like all you did was get out of your chair, go to the front of a church, kneel down and say some words. Why is this so hard? When my great-grandfather got saved, he was the last holdout in the Warner family. 
Everybody else had been saved. This poor man had to watch his whole family get religion around him. Finally, he agrees, fine, I'll come to church. And that preacher gave the invitation and says, if there's anybody who wants to be saved, come forward. He got out of that chair and sprinted down the aisle. Again, again, another hard man, notorious sinner. And my grandfather's like, that's great that he's doing this, but dad, you're kind of embarrassing me running in the middle of the church. And I said, dad, what was that all about? He goes, I was scared to death that I was going to die before I got to that altar. What is, why does that happen? Because it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. Because you know there's a death that happens inside of you. You are being crucified with Christ, the word says. The old man is gone. And that's hard because you realize everything I've been and define myself by and all those stories I posted on Instagram about how great I am and you got to love yourself, that it all means nothing. And it's all going to have to be burned up on the altar. And we begin to weep. And all the anger we've held against the world and against God just passes away in the love of Jesus Christ. So it's hard, but it's also the only way to be saved. And the Lord has made it that it's just, it's not up to heaven, not down to earth. It's in your heart and in your mouth. Confess and believe. So we know that we cannot save ourselves, but Jesus has done everything that needs to be done to save us. All you must do is confess and believe. So there's one final question Paul's going to answer. Who is this for? Who is this for? Well, the answer is that it is available for everyone. Let's read verses 11 through 13. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction, underline that, no distinction between Jew and Greek. We might say Jew and Roman or Jew and Anglo-Saxon or Jew and American. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He quotes there in verse 11 from Isaiah 28, verse 16, where he says, I'm laying a cornerstone in Zion. And we know that that was Jesus, the Messiah. He was the foundation of what God was doing with the apostles and prophets. He was the chief cornerstone. And he says, everybody who puts their faith in him will not be put to shame. You're not going to show up to heaven and realize, ah, sorry, you didn't have to do any of that. You will not be put to shame. And he connects it to the means of salvation, right? Everyone who believes will not be put to shame. That's what we just read. Confess and believe. This has always been the way of salvation. There were not distinct ways to be saved throughout time. It all revolved around faith, believing in the Lord. But he immediately moves on from the means of salvation to the availability of salvation, which is everyone who believes makes that great statement in verse 12 that God does not make a distinction on matters like this. And here he points out between Jew and Gentile, but in other places, between slave and free, between male and female, between this culture and that culture, between Chinese and American, between people from the first century and people from the 21st century. There is no distinction when it comes to salvation. And why? You might miss this if you go too quick. The end of verse 12, he says, for the same Lord is Lord of all. The key of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4 says, but hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. We know through further progressive revelation that he is triune, but there is one God. He's God over all. He's not just some tribal God from the ancient Near East. He's Lord over all. So everybody, Paul is saying, is able to be saved by him. Because the Jews had this possessive thing about God. Well, he shouldn't be saving all these Gentiles. It's for us. He goes, isn't there only one Lord? 
Therefore, isn't he Lord of all? Therefore, aren't all people able to come to him and be saved? Isaiah 49, verse 6, when the Lord is speaking prophetically to his servant with a capital S, meaning Jesus, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. Meaning for you to be the savior of Israel, that's too, too light, too small, too little. I will make you as a light for the nations. That word in Hebrew is goyim. Maybe you've heard that if you've known some Jewish people. It means Gentiles, ethne in Greek, nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So even in the Old Testament, God was prophesying when my Messiah comes, he won't just save Jews. He's too great for that. Jesus is too great to be kept to the house of Israel. He says the riches of God are available to everyone who asks the riches of God. He's quoting in verse 13 when he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's from Joel 2, verse 32. You know that passage. It's the same one that says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and they shall prophesy and dream dreams. And the end of that passage says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When Peter was explaining the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two, he quoted from that same passage. He says, we are now living in the days where salvation has been made available to the whole world. And all that is necessary is that you call on the name of the Lord, confess and believe. You might say, trust and obey. There's no other way, right? So no group of people, no nation of people, no body is outside of God's salvation. It's available to everyone, which is why we take the gospel to the world which is why the gospel was brought to the United States, which is why we take the gospel to Africa and China and North Korea and Brazil and India, because they are all equally able to be saved, but they need to hear. I am getting ahead of myself. That's what Paul's going to talk about next time. But there's nothing that prevents anybody from calling on the name of the Lord. It's not up in heaven. It's not down in hell. The Lord brought all of that together in Christ. He's placed it in your heart and in your mouth. Nothing prevents anyone from calling on the Lord to be saved. So what is preventing you? What's preventing you from calling on the name of the Lord to be saved? Because it's not God. God is not keeping anybody out of heaven. He has made his salvation open and available. He said, when the Son of Man is raised up, I will draw all men to myself. Which means God is drawing you to salvation. This is what the Bible says. Number one. No one is good enough to be saved. Number two, Jesus died and rose again so that we might be saved. Number three, you must confess and believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved. And number four, salvation is available for everybody. There is depth to the gospel. We've been looking at it for months, right? Looking at every little detail and chasing it through the scriptures. But it's also simple enough that a child may receive it. This is why I have no problem praying with little children to ask Jesus into their hearts. I want to make sure they understand, but the gospel is not that complicated. The gospel is not complicated. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. My kids love to say, Jesus died so that we don't have to. Isn't that right? In fact, Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you will never see the kingdom of God. Unless you are willing to let go of that pride and that intellectual arrogance that you've got and just believe the same thing that all these other, as you would say, stupid people are believing, 
you will never be saved. This is why Jesus said it's hard for rich people and it's hard for smart people to get saved because they think that they're better than everybody else. They think they're on a different plane, but they're not. But poor, broken people get saved all the time because they don't have to be convinced of that first part. They know they're not good enough. That's why prisoners get saved. That's why people on their deathbeds get saved because they know. This is why it seems that so many people, they get saved, they have some, some horrible story because they were made to realize how helpless they were. Very often, though, the difficulty is not one of comprehension. Many people know just how to be saved, but it's pride. It's a refusal to be saved. I won't come to the Lord. And I will say this. I think that there are people in the church who believe everything I just said, but have not made the confession that Jesus is Lord. They really do believe that that's God's word, that Jesus was the Son of God, but they know what it takes to be saved, and they won't. The judgment upon that person is going to be so terrible on that final day. Maybe you're not, maybe you're willing to risk your own soul on your righteousness. Maybe you say, you know what? I know that you say no one's good enough to be saved, but I really think I'm pretty good. I think I've kind of got this sorted out I, and I'm willing to take my chances. You meet people like this all the time. They say, I, I really think that I can find this out. I had a dear friend of mine, one of my best friends ever, who just went completely out of his mind for years. And finally, he was starting to drift back toward the church. And I was talking to him about the gospel, but he still had all of these weird ideas he's picked up that didn't want to let go of. And I said, you really think that you're able to sort through what is and is not God's truth? And he said, yes. I said, then you haven't hit rock bottom yet. That was kind of the whole context of our conversations. I finally hit rock bottom and I'm ready to come back. But he really hadn't because he still thought he could figure it out for himself. Perhaps you have a problem with the second point, that we have an exclusive gospel. Jesus only? What about all the Hindus? You know that there's billions of Hindus in the world, right? What about all these people in the, the deep, dark jungles of Antarctica that have never heard the gospel? What about them? What about these really pious, wonderful Muslim neighbors that I have? Are you telling me that they can't be saved just because they don't believe in Jesus? I'm telling you that that is what the Bible says. And sometimes I'll ask the question, if you knew that it was the only way, would you be saved? And those folks don't even want to answer that question because they refuse to even countenance the idea that God has only knocked one hole into the side of the burning building. Why not three or four? Because he only knocked one. And he sent me out to tell you. Number three, you, maybe you refuse to call anyone Lord. I'm an American. I'm, a, I'm an independent, self-sufficient, free citizen. I bow to no one, not even God. Haven't you seen how our American religion has been shaped to fit our culture and what we truly value? That God asks very little of us and in fact is just there to give you everything that you've always wanted? We correct every other culture when we go as missionaries. We're missionaries to this one too. You must bow the knee to your king. And I know kings are not really our thing in this country, but that's exactly who Jesus is. In fact, he's the king of kings. And perhaps number four, you think you're too far gone. I know salvation is available for everybody, but if I were to sit here and tell you my story, you would be shocked and you wouldn't even want to talk to me anymore. I'm too far gone. I'm here because I know I should be, but I really have no faith that Jesus can save me. Maybe you have one of those objections or a different one, but can you at least agree with me? If we're going to disagree at that, let's agree on this, that what you are saying is not what the Bible says. 
Can you at least agree that the Bible teaches those things? That God is the one who said no one is good enough? That God is the one who put Jesus as our means of salvation? That God said confess and believe? That God said everyone might be saved? If we can acknowledge that, then you need to acknowledge you're disagreeing with God. These are not my ideas. These are the Lord's words. Jesus told us in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's salvation. That God loved you so much. Knowing that you couldn't get there, he said, I'll do it. I'll bridge the gap. And all you've got to do is confess and believe. It does not take one action from you. Just your confession and your belief. And it's open to everybody. He has done everything that is possible, which is why God is fully justified in sending to hell those who do not, because he has made it so simple and so easy and universally available that there's no excuse, not that there ever was. If you have not put your faith in Christ, this could be your day. When you make the good confession and you're justified in God's eyes, when God will hear you today and count your faith as righteousness on that day, because it's not about you. It's about looking unto Jesus, the Son of God, who died and rose again to save you. And for the rest of us, this is our message. This is our only message. This is what we have to share with the world. There are lots of other things that come from this, but this is the center of everything. Until the Lord returns or calls us home as individuals, we are going to proclaim and preach this message, the simple gospel of faith in Christ, now and forever.